Welcome to PedScript. I'm Zach Hodges, a pediatric ICU fellow from UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin, a critical care fellow at Children's National in Washington, D.C. Alice, will you remind us what we do here at PedScript? Absolutely. PedScript is an educational pick you podcast. We're looking for the best bedside teaching spiels around the country and the world, and we are putting them on the internet for you. Zach, who are we talking with today? Today, we are very excited to be speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Colleen. Dr. Colleen is an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Washington and an attending physician in the pediatric ICU at Seattle Children's. After completing her critical care fellowship, she received additional training in pediatric trauma research at Harborview Injury Prevention and Research Center, where she also received her MPH. She's one of the leading minds in post-intensive care syndrome in pediatrics, and we're so excited to have her on the podcast today. Yes, this is such a good episode. In part one of two, we're talking about what post-intensive care syndrome is and why more of your patients are at risk than you probably previously thought. Yes, let's get right to the episode. Welcome back to the podcast. We are so excited to be meeting with Dr. Elizabeth Colleen about this very important topic. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. To get things started, will you share with our listeners something about yourself and be sure to include something you enjoy outside of medicine? All right. I am a faculty member at the University of Washington and Seattle Children's Hospital. That's where I did my training as well. And I am a research scientist there focusing primarily on outcomes after pediatric critical illness and trauma. And I love living in Seattle and the outdoors and love hiking and backpacking and other adventure travel in particular. Oh, I believe it. I think that area is so beautiful. Dr. Colleen, how did you become interested in post-intensive care syndrome? And then what are you working on now? I became interested in outcomes research after the ICU in general as really an opportunity that presented itself to me as a third-year resident. I was at Seattle at the University of Washington and was interested in critical care and so met with the division chief here to learn about ways that I could become involved from a research standpoint as I prepared for a fellowship application. And John McGuire, the division chief, listened to what I had done previously and some interests and said, hey, you know, one of our faculty members, Jerry Zimmerman, is right next door and he's looking for someone to help out with this new study that he has on outcomes after sepsis. Do you want to meet him? And Hmm. I had heard of Jerry Zimmerman. And so I, of course, just said yes. And he is the one who really introduced me to this area. He talked very eloquently in our first meeting that day about the importance of evaluating how kids did after surviving the ICU and how important it could be to start learning about post-ICU morbidity as an outcome in and of itself rather than just looking at mortality. And so he was really the one who got me interested in the first place. And then as I entered fellowship, I really connected with the other outcomes researchers in our division and learned about their different takes on the field and became very uh, interested in the topic myself. But the original introduction was just taking advantage of opportunities in front of me. Oh, That's a theme for many of our guests that we have on the show, key mentors and key opportunities placed in front of them and taking advantage of that. And I think another take-home point, if anyone ever says, do you want to meet a giant like Jerry Zimmerman and talk to him about research? The answer is usually yes. I think that that is very true. I, after my fellowship, 
had an opportunity to do a T32 research training program. And the topic of research for the training program was pediatric trauma. And that was not an area that I had done anything in and hadn't really thought about as a particular area of interest. And when I spoke with some folks who had done the program previously, they said, if you have an opportunity to train with Fred Rivara, who was the head of the program and is a very prominent general pediatrician, they said, take it. And so I took that advice and I did that program and it was really fantastic advice. The training and mentorship I received from Dr. Rivara through that program was really career changing and has continued to this day. He remains one of my primary mentors. And to your question about what I do now, I had, because of that, incorporated trauma research as part of my interest. And what I was able to do is incorporate the exposure to pediatric trauma training with the T32 into my prior interest in outcomes research. And I'm now looking mostly at outcomes after severe multisystem trauma and severe organ failure in both the medical and surgical trauma population. Oh, nice. I have two follow-up questions. The first is, was that T32, was that your third year of fellowship into your first year of as an attending? I did it as a separate program, so I applied to it during my third year of fellowship. Mm -hmm. That was not necessarily a pre-planned event. I was looking at job opportunities, and that came up as another opportunity. So Mm -hmm. uh, it was not necessarily a deliberate decision to do it after fellowship, but that's how it worked out. And so I did it for the two years after my critical care fellowship training and worked as an attending while completing the T32. Oh, nice. Zach and I obviously are very familiar with Dr. Zimmerman because of the textbook and because of his work. Before you met with him, the person who decided to introduce you did so based on your work prior. What had you done sort of prior to your residency to ramp up to those big projects? Yeah, I would say I was really not a big researcher before that. I had done some work before entering medical school as a clinical research associate. So that really introduced me to the field of clinical research in general. So I knew that I had an interest in the area itself. And then during residency, I had done some work in how severity of illness is associated with in-hospital outcomes Mm. um, and had not really thought about or done much with post-hospital outcomes. Gotcha. That makes sense. And when I reflect on my own training it doesn't seem that post-intensive care syndrome is really on the forefront of our thoughts and, and what we're talking about each day. Do you have any recommendations for PICU fellows who may want to learn more and become more involved in this topic? Yeah, it's a really good point because I think that the idea of post-intensive care syndrome in general and morbidity after the ICU is something that arose primarily or initially through the research space and in many situations, in many locations, has yet to be incorporated systematically into clinical care. And I think that that's really the next step in this discussion of post-ICU outcomes is that the research surrounding it has just skyrocketed in the past 10 years, which is fantastic. It remains still limited compared to research in other areas, but there's really quite a bit more understanding now of what it is, what aspects of a person's development and functioning are impacted, and some of the risk factors for why. 
but there's very few places around the country that have incorporated post-ICU follow-up into their clinical management. And so from a fellow standpoint, one of the best ways of getting involved, I think, is to get involved from the research standpoint. One of the groups that has done a lot with post-ICU outcomes is the Polisi Organization, which, for those of you who don't know, is the Pediatric Acute Lung Injury and Sepsis Investigators, and it's a network of pediatric critical care researchers. And it meets twice a year. There's an opportunity for fellows to join that meeting and to learn from folks doing critical care research around the country. And there's also a fellows research course attached to each meeting where fellows and junior faculty can learn about how to do clinical research and incorporate that into their careers. But the police organization has a subgroup that is devoted to post-ICU outcomes and has an opportunity for fellows to become involved in research opportunities and to present their own work. We're actually in a place right now where we're just starting a few new research projects that are very amenable to fellow involvement because mm-hmm. most, if not all of them, are designed to be multi-site studies. Oh, that's exciting. And it sounds like a great opportunity. I think it really is. We had done a pretty extensive review of the literature of what exists in post-pediatric ICU outcomes research and development of a core outcome set for researchers to use. And then now that that project has concluded, we're really resetting at this point and beginning new projects. So it's a really nice time for fellows to get involved in that if they're interested. All right. Before we get started with the case, we ask every guest, do you have any relevant conflicts of interest to disclose related to this topic? I don't. I do receive NIH funding for my outcomes research, and that's the only conflict of interest that I have. Great. Yeah, Allison, give us our case. All right. So we've got a previously healthy eight-year-old boy coming to transfer out of the ICU two weeks after he was admitted. He was recovering from a case of a community-acquired pneumonia complicated by a large empyema. He required intubation and invasive mechanical ventilation for one week, as well as a chest tube. He was also very difficult to sedate and required many agents, including a continuous midazolam infusion, for several days. His mother's anxious about leaving the ICU and is worried about the next steps of his recovery from this critical illness. This is such a common case in the PICU, especially this year, it seems. Can you help us define the post-intensive care syndrome and talk about what exactly it is? Absolutely. So first, to define post-intensive care syndrome, it is important that we recognize that it is a framework of how to understand the constellation of potential morbidities that may happen after a patient leaves the ICU. It is not in of itself a diagnosis. It has not yet been validated clinically, though that work is ongoing. And so the idea of post-intensive care syndrome really developed in the adult world first, and it was centered around three main domains of morbidity that were observed in adults surviving ICU care, physical health, mental health, and cognitive function. It was then reframed for the pediatric population to add aspects of the post-ICU experience that are unique to children And that incorporated elements of social health and school functioning. The role of the family is a really integral part of post-ICU recovery and support for kids and child development. And so the 
overall post-intensive care syndrome for pediatrics, or PICS-P, highlights the importance of the child's baseline status, which we can get into more of how important that is, the maturation of their organ systems, their psychosocial development, the role of their family, and really how recovery of their health proceeds over time. What are the different trajectories that that may occur? And that adds to the three domains that were already present in the adult framework of physical, mental, and cognitive functioning. Another important aspect that is called out in the PICS-P framework is the role of siblings in supporting the patient's recovery. And that's something that we don't know very much about at this point. The idea of the recovery trajectory, I think, is a particularly interesting component that's called out in PICS-P. And it really highlights that children, on the one hand, have a much longer time period over which morbidity can be long-lasting and impact multiple different areas of their development. But it also highlights the opportunity for resilience over time that may be unique to a child compared to adult. And so we really don't know how the trajectory of recovery over time compares in children of different ages versus adults. And so this is the framework that has been developed for PICS-P. And right now there is a prospective multi-center study that is being conducted throughout the United States to really try to validate this definition or this framework into an actual clinical syndrome of asking, is this actually a thing? (laughs) If it is, what are the components that are most prominent? And how does the trajectory of decline and recovery change over the course of an admission through two years post-admission? And it focuses on multiple aspects of the child's health, as well as that of the family and a role for that of the siblings. And so that's really where we're at from a research standpoint. In terms of talking with families, I have not personally used terms like post-intensive care syndrome or PICS-P when speaking with families. I think it is incredibly important, though, to talk with families and post-ICU providers about the concept that recovery from an illness like this doesn't end at ICU discharge or even hospital discharge. Yes. Such great information. Let me read this back to you, make sure I understand. So it seems that the major domains that are affected in the post-ICU syndrome are, of course, the physical health, but also the cognitive health, the emotional health, and the social health, and that being the relationship with the families, the siblings, perhaps the peers in school. And then all of that gets combined into the trajectory of their deterioration, of course, for critical illness, but also recovery. Do you feel like I've grasped that? That is a great summary. Okay. Would you tell us, what are the risk factors for our patients in the ICU who are at most risk for dealing with these negative outcomes like post-intensive care syndrome? There have been a lot of studies so far that have documented that patients surviving ICU care have declined in many of these areas of physical, mental, cognitive, and social health. And In addition, one of the concepts that we talk about from a research standpoint a lot, but that isn't incorporated into clinical language very much, is health-related quality of life. And I think that is important to call out because that is a concept that really combines a lot of those 
dimensions of potential morbidity into a single comprehensive measure that includes physical, social, psychological, cognitive health, symptom satisfaction with health, and really from a pediatric standpoint, incorporates that aspect of ability to participate with peers and keep up with their developmentally appropriate activities, succeed in school, interact with their family, their behavior, etc. And so while it is not necessarily specifically called out as a domain in the PIXP framework, it is a concept that has really taken off in a lot of the research world as a comprehensive measure that incorporates a lot of these domains. And so we know that kids surviving ICU care have declines in a lot of these different areas. There is emerging literature on what the factors are that are associated with declines in those areas. For better or worse, one of the the things that we found is that there's a lot of different things that may be associated with declines in these various areas. And so that offers potentially a lot of different targets for intervention. It also, to some degree, makes it a very heterogeneous problem to address because it's not saying, if you receive this medication, then you will have a much higher risk of having post-ICU morbidity. It really is, as most things are in the ICU, quite multifactorial. Some of the things that are really important to address, though, when you're thinking about an actual patient in front of you. One that's very important to take into account, especially when speaking with families about this, is what is the child's baseline status? And we know this because a lot of studies have looked at post-ICU outcomes and compared kids who have survived an ICU stay to general population norms in terms of how they're doing from a quality of life, developmental, intellectual, or physical status. And it's important to acknowledge that the average child who is admitted to an ICU has at least one, if not multiple, chronic comorbidities. And a lot of the ways that we assess post-ICU morbidities depend to some degree on physical and cognitive function. And so we know, for example, that one of the more common quality of life measures, which is the Pediatric Quality of Life Inventory, the PEDSQL, that has a population mean score of 84. That means that of healthy children, their average score is 84 out of 100, with 100 being the highest quality of life. However, if you look at a otherwise healthy child who happens to have cerebral palsy, their mean score is 51. So that's two standard deviations below that population mean score. And it doesn't necessarily mean that their interpretation of their own quality of life is lower than a otherwise healthy child might interpret their quality of life, but it means that the way that we measure quality of life using that particular instrument relies heavily on physical functioning. In certain areas that a child with cerebral mm-hmm. palsy may not be able to achieve the same scores as somebody who doesn't have those physical differences, like running ability, for example. And so when we're looking at how a child recovers after illness, it's extremely important to compare that to the child's own baseline status, not to general population norms. So for example, that child with cerebral palsy who has a score before they got sick of 51, if their score after they leave the ICU is 45, you might say, oh, they declined a little bit, but not that much compared to their baseline. Where if you compared it to the general population norm of 81, 
then you would think that they had this just extreme decline and really overestimate the burden of critical illness for that Mm. patient. In contrast, you might have a patient whose baseline score was 100, and their post-ICU score of 80 is exactly the same as the population mean. You might score that as no deficits. Mm -hmm. But for that individual, that actually might be a very substantial change in their quality of life compared to their typical. So I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to put these post-ICU measures in the context of the child's own baseline status. So that's number one. In terms of the impact of the child's baseline status on their post-ICU recovery, that's also important to call out. We know that pre-existing comorbid illness is one of the more common risk factors for post-ICU morbidity across many of those different domains. And that is in relation to their own baseline status, not just in relation to typical norms. And so somebody coming in with immunocompromise, chronic respiratory failure, other chronic comorbid conditions, it may be more and more difficult for them to recover back to their own baseline after each of their own ICU stays. Some other aspects of the ICU stay itself that have come up in multiple studies as being associated with declines in various areas of functioning include severity of illness. That has variable association with post-ICU outcomes. And it's important to call that out so that we don't miss the kids who don't have as high of a severity of illness at admission. I think that all of us can look at a child who has been in the ICU for weeks and weeks and incredibly ill on multiple life-sustaining therapies and say, this is a child who may have difficulty recovering back to their baseline. And that's true. We know that there's an association in many studies with severity of illness and length of stay, duration of mechanical ventilation, et cetera, with their post-ICU outcomes. There are also many patients who don't have very high severity of illness on our traditional markers of that who have declines in physical functioning, quality of life, emotional problems. And that probably more than anything, I think, is what is important to highlight with families, that their post-ICU recovery might actually surprise them in terms of how hard it is for somebody Mm -hmm. who isn't intubated or who has not been in the ICU for a month the experience of hospitalization in and of itself seems to have an impact on a number of kids. We looked at a group of patients with sepsis who were on the floor in the ICU with varying degrees of illness severity from sepsis without any signs of organ dysfunction of any kind who were on the floor with short hospital lengths of stay all the way through kids with severe septic shock in the ICU. And while the kids with higher severity of illness did have higher prevalence of quality of life declines after their ICU admission, the kids on the floor without severe sepsis or septic shock, about 20% of those had a clinically significant decline in their quality of life in the months after their hospital stay. And so just the experience of being in the hospital away from their typical daily life can have an impact on kids. Oh, wow. That's broader than I thought. These are the kids who are on BIPOC for asthma for a day, and then they go out to the floor, and then they go home, right? That's not in my mental model of this is traumatic. This is a step down. You need to work on your social, emotional, cognitive recovery. Exactly. And when we think of numbers like 20%, 
So on the one hand, that means that 80% of kids do great and have no problems after that type of stay, go home, get back to their daily lives and have no issues. But 20% is a lot of kids when you think about the number of kids that do come into our hospitals with things like asthma on BiPAP for a day. And one of the things that we in the ICU are very bad at is sharing with families and floor providers and primary care providers that this could be a concern that they need to watch for Mm -hmm. um, to help support these families. Yeah. Some of the other things that we know that have associations with poor post-ICU outcomes are pain is one of the areas that comes up a lot. One of our fellows here at Seattle Children's did a really nice study recently on the association between pain in the ICU and quality of life after discharge. And what she found is that there really is a linear relationship between more days of severe pain and lower quality of life. To the point where between the way that a significant change in quality of life is defined, about a day and a half of severe pain is, or just say, with severe pain. So on any time during the day that you experience severe pain, that's associated with a clinically significant decline in your quality of life after wow. discharge. And I thought one thing that was really interesting about that and that relates back to the case that you guys mentioned is that included medical patients, not mm-hmm. just surgical patients. And we, I think, don't necessarily, or at least I don't necessarily always recognize that kids without surgical problems also may experience pain. And that could be due to IVs, chest tubes, breathing tubes. Sometimes just the cares that we do may be uncomfortable for patients. And that those kids also can experience pain and have the negative consequences associated with that in addition to kids who have undergone large surgical procedures. The other aspect of her work that I found really interesting was that the area of quality of life that was most substantially reduced was actually emotional health, not physical health, which I found really fascinating. And when we looked at the actual questions that families rated their children as having declines in, it was things like worrying about what was going to happen to them, anger, sleep difficulties, These areas that are much more subtle than saying, you know, can you get out of bed and walk across the room? Yeah. Similarly, another area that comes up a lot as an association with poor quality of life and other outcomes is delirium and sedation management, which are obviously very closely tied together. We know that delirium is associated with a higher risk of quality of life decline. And we know that inadequate sedation management and also receipt of certain sedative agents is associated with declines in functional status and quality of life from various studies that have been done. And again, there's a very close association, as you guys know, between sedation management and delirium. Mm -hmm. Threading the needle between adequate pain control and delirium, opioid-induced hyperalgesia, things like that that are just going to make the problem worse. Exactly. One of the findings of the RESTORE study that looked at functional and quality of life outcomes after acute respiratory failure found that inadequate pain and inadequate sedation were both risk factors for post-ICU declines in those areas. And on the one hand, especially as we think again about this child with respiratory failure and embyema who is difficult to sedate, Mm -hmm. 
you know, we know that inadequate sedation is a risk factor for declines in functional status, quality of life after ICU discharge, but that also delirium is associated with those same declines. And so where is that fine line between making sure that we're treating their pain and agitation appropriately without contributing ourselves to additional problems with their recovery? Mm -hmm. This is fascinating. And because it's so important, I wanted to offer a quick summary. It seems that our patient's risk of post-intensive care syndrome is closely related to their baseline status prior to their ICU stay. And even though it might seem like it, their severity of illness may not be as reliable of a predictor that they're going to suffer long-term consequences of their ICU stay. We also learned that pain and issues with delirium and sedation are also really important for these patients. Do you feel like there's a particular age or perhaps cohort in our PICU that are as highest risk for developing severe post-intensive care syndrome? I think the question about age is a very interesting one, and that's because multiple studies have found that there's a greater risk of declines in older kids and teenagers compared to younger kids. And I find that interesting because I am not sure if that relates more to the instruments that we use to assess these changes Mm -hmm. or to the actual impact of an ICU stay on kids of each of those age groups. So, for example, if we were to assess a infant's development or functional status, and we said that before they came to the ICU, they could do X, Y, and Z. And then we asked the family again in six months, can they do X, Y, and Z? If they said yes, that may be rated as no decline in their functional status. However, I do think it's important to call out that an infant six months later should actually be expected to do more than they were doing before they came to the ICU. And are we missing a impact on their developmental progression by asking if they can do the same things that they did before they came to the ICU rather than Mm -hmm. if they can do more, as we might expect for a typically developing infant. And so I do worry to some degree that we might be missing this for our very young patients. That being said, it's also possible that the association between older age and greater impact on quality of life and functional status is real. And some of the ways that that might occur would be if the reasons that older kids come into an ICU are systematically different than the reasons that an infant or toddler comes into the ICU and that those infant and toddler diagnoses are just inherently easier to recover from. Your bronchiolitis, etc., may just inherently be an illness that does not have as much of an impact on post-ICU morbidity as a trauma, septic shock, oncologic diagnosis, some of the other types of diagnoses that we see more commonly in the older age groups compared to the younger age groups. It is also possible that the younger kids have greater resilience in recovering from a critical illness and perhaps less impact on their interactions with their social support networks and their families because they have not established those typical routines quite as strongly as older kids may have, where a week-long hospital stay for a teenager may have a big impact on their school and social life 
compared to a toddler being in the ICU for a week and being out of their social environment for that long. Oh, absolutely. So many confounders that are like impossible to detangle. And how do you compare a toddler to their baseline three months later? Because they're supposed to be walking now, right? Exactly. And so I think that we we do have really nice instruments to mm-hmm. assess functional status, quality of life, cognitive status, but they're not perfect. And none of them were developed for specifically for the pediatric ICU population. And I think that's really important to call out is that we rely on measures that are appropriately intended to be broad and used in a lot of different patient settings. And the more specific we get to our ICU population, the less generalizable they are to other populations. Mm -hmm. And obviously our own ICU population is quite heterogeneous in and of itself. So it is difficult to know whether we're measuring the right thing. It also brings up the important point of how do we measure these outcomes? Most of the work that we have on post-ICU outcomes is patient and family reported. And that means that we are contacting families in the weeks and months and years after their child has been in the intensive care unit and asking them questions about how their child is doing. And that is a really, really great way of getting the family's perspective on that. But it is different, not necessarily better or worse, but different than observing the child directly or getting more objective measures of school performance, cognitive performance, physical functioning. There are some studies that do that and have done a really nice job with that, but obviously the limitations with that are sample size, expense, Mm -hmm. and very importantly is that there's a real difference in the types of families who are able to bring their child back into the hospital or a clinic for comprehensive physical or psychosocial testing compared to the general population of kids who may have that illness. And so A lot of the studies that look at these broader measures are not entirely representative of the cohorts of patients we actually see. And something we need to do better is figure out how to measure these outcomes on all patients, not just the ones that are more likely to come back to the hospital or respond to our surveys. Mm -hmm. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Crit. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are their own and do not reflect the official position of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscriptpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at critpeds and at pedscrit on Instagram for real-time show updates. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review in your favorite podcasting application and share with your colleagues. Also, if you'd like to support the making of the podcast, please see the description for Venmo information and how to become a Patreon. Any donation will be appreciated. Thank you again for listening and goodbye.